This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. For years, Mark Epstein kept his beliefs as a Buddhist separate from his work as a psychiatrist. But as he became more forthcoming with his patients about his spiritual learning, he was surprised to find many were eager to hear more. The divisions between the psychological, emotional, and the spiritual were not as distinct as one might think. In this episode, Dr. Epstein is joined by CIIS professor and psychologist Alzac Amlani in a conversation about his life, his work, and his latest book, The Zen of Therapy. This episode was recorded during a live online event on January 26, 2022. A transcript is available at CIISpod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, CIIS.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Hello, Mark. It's Hello, great Mark. to see you. Hello, Alza. And, it, and it's really a delight to have you here at CIS, especially after your accomplishment of your most recent book. I've read and actually included some of your other books, Going on Being and Thoughts Without a Thinker, in some of my classes. So I'm excited that I've got another piece to work with now. In your uh, book, Zen of Therapy, you state that your intention is to show that meditation does not have to be a solitary intrapsychic endeavor. We can also work interpersonally and to demonstrate that emotional life, rather than being a distraction, can serve as a critical doorway to spiritual understanding. And I was quite intrigued about that integration that you brought. There's such a complexity and richness in how you take us into the room with your patients and how you weave your psychotherapeutic work, primarily from Western psychoanalytic approaches, as well as your Buddhist uh, meditation and study over the last 30 years. You sprinkle various chapters with Japanese haiku, and you also quote from the musician John Cage in a few chapters. And I especially enjoyed reading about your psychological understanding of the life of the Buddha. Maybe you could start with this larger context and how these various streams have come together for you, especially in writing this book. I'd be happy to. I'm not sure that everyone who's 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 listening knows my background or anything. So that I think it might be helpful just to start with a little bit of uh, of that material. The this kind of strange thing and the unique thing uh, about my experience is that although I am a traditionally trained psychiatrist, which means I went to medical school, uh, you know, et cetera, um, I was immersed in Buddhist thought and Buddhist practice. Uh, from a very young age, way before I decided to uh, become a psychiatrist. So I was, you know, fortunate enough to be exposed to 
uh, uh, Vipassana meditation, mindfulness meditation, uh, teachers like Joseph Goldstein, Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg, Ramdas, uh, starting in my early, early 20s and traveled in Asia with all of them to meet their spiritual teachers and so on. And then went from that experience, doing a lot of uh, silent retreats, as many as I, as I could uh, manage to integrate into my life at the time. Uh, I went from all of that to medical school and then to training as a psychiatrist. So um, all of that training, um, which uh, I had under the, the umbrella of a lot of very good traditional psychoanalytic uh, uh, psychotherapists, I, I looked at that training always through a Buddhist lens because the, the Buddhist psychology was already, that was the first thing that I found that made any sense to me. Um, so uh, all of my writing and a lot of my clinical work in the next you know, 40 years or whatever it has turned out to be um, uh, has been about first, uh, in my mind, trying to translate or interpret uh, Buddhist psychology uh, into the Western psychodynamic language uh, that we all speak, even if we're not Freudian, you know, uh, that the, those, those ideas of a uh, hundred years of psychoanalysis have kind of permeated the way we think about our minds and our personalities, our character, and so on. So I wanted to make Buddhist psychology Buddhist meditation, I wanted to explain it in a way that uh, Western people could understand. That was my, my, my internal mission in a lot of my uh, early books. Um, but the question that kept coming to me that I uh, evaded as, as much as I could uh, for many years was, well, okay, okay, but how do you actually bring your, your Buddhist understanding, your meditation background, how do you bring that into the practice of psychotherapy? Do you teach your patients to meditate? Do you sit silently with them? Do you, do you give them instruction? Uh, and I was always, no, no, I'm just, uh, when I'm a therapist, I'm just being a therapist. But, and hopefully if the Buddhist, uh, if the Buddhist thing has made an impression on me, uh, it should be coming through me in some way. Um, so I, I was content to let it be a kind of implicit or silent influence. Um, if patients would come to me who were interested in Buddhism or wanted to learn about meditation, I would certainly give them guidance, tell them where to go to learn. But, uh, but I didn't actively try to proselytize or convert or even teach meditation in the psychotherapy office. I was content to just be the therapist. Um, but with this book, which I began probably three or four years ago, uh, when I was already in my early to mid 60s, uh, I decided, okay, it's been enough time, I should be able to start to answer that question. How am I really bringing my Buddhist self, if we can use that word, uh, how am I really bringing my Buddhist self to this practice of psychotherapy? And um, uh, I decided to set myself a, uh, an agenda to try to find out or to try to describe, to try to put words on something that, that uh, I had avoided putting words on because I wanted it to come, as I said, more organically. Um, so uh, I decided towards the end of 2018 to 
write down at least one psychotherapy session uh, a week in which I felt that something of my spiritual uh, understanding or background or attempt to, uh, you know, channel that, that something of my spiritual understanding was infiltrating the psychotherapy session. Uh, and I, I decided I would try to do that at least one session a week. So I would take notes uh, immediately after the session, which I don't ordinarily do unless I'm giving medication or something, you know, extremely important has happened. Uh, but I tried as much as possible to write the session down. Uh, and then in my writing time, usually over the weekend or the following Monday, I tried to write the session up, um, you, you, describing it uh, as close to the bone as I could, but in a, you know, in a kind of literary fashion. Um, and I did that for a year, forcing myself to, uh, to pick these sessions out and um, not following any given patient, but, uh, but allowing, because I'm, I'm seeing 30 or 40 people a week, allowing one session to, you know, this is the one that speaks to me. So at the end of a year, I had a kind of mosaic or a collage or a kaleidoscopic version of, you know, one year's worth of therapy in my office. And, um, uh, and then I started to read through the sessions, which I hadn't done for the entire year to see it, what I might discover from, uh, from, from what I had recorded, you know? Um, and that was the beginning of this book that then uh, I can go on talking. Um, I hope you, you, hopefully you have other questions that, uh, that I'll give you time for, but um, uh, after, after um, going through the year's worth of sessions, I, I took that stack of material and showed it to the editor that I have at Penguin uh, who did my last two books to ask her mm -hmm. if she thought there was something of interest here. And she read through it and, and she said, yeah, I think there's something here. People will be interested in this, you know, a therapist kind of showing what goes on, uh, like in treatment or something. Um, but she said, there's no real, the only real through line is you, because you're not following any individual cases. So she suggested that I go through and write like a reflection or a commentary uh, on, each sec on each session showing more about what was going through my mind, uh, what, what I was seeing, what I was thinking in, in each session. So I, I always listen to her because she only gives me very tiny bits of advice, which are usually correct. Um, and then COVID hit. So, so it, it so happened that this year of recording these, um, these psychotherapy sessions turned out to be the last year before COVID. So everything went remote. Um, I had a record of the last year of face-to-face in-office psychotherapy, you know, and then I was um, in quarantine, you know, uh, with this project. So it was a very good time. It was like being on retreat, like a writing retreat. Mm. And I really spent time with going through the sessions and thinking about what, uh, what might have happened and what I was seeing. And meanwhile, the seasons were passing. It was like, you know, winter and then spring. And, and I'm really noticing all like I'm in the country and, you know, uh, um, uh, the clouds and the flowers and the summer and fall. So um, each session started to look like a uh, Japanese haiku, uh, you know, because uh, in, in the tiny details of the session, I started to see, oh, there's so much happening. So, uh, 
So that's where the Zen of therapy, which is the title of the book, that's where that started to come in. So, uh, so that theme of uh, looking at the tiny details and seeing, you know, the whole world, uh, I started to tap that. Uh, and then, and then I let myself bring in all the other important influences uh, uh, that have been with me for many years now. So including the composer, John Cage, the British uh, pediatrician and psychoanalyst, Donald Winnicott, uh, Ram Dass, the Dalai Lama, Joseph uh, Goldstein and Jack Kornfield. Uh, there's a, a British writer, Adam Phillips, who's influenced me a lot. So all, the, the book became a kind of woven tapestry of uh, all of these influences on my way of thinking and working. And um, uh, that's probably enough <laughs> as a first answer. We could talk about it more. That's, that's beautiful. Um, I love how <clears throat> it took several iterations and you didn't know exactly where it was going to lead and how it sounds like the writing of it and then collaborating with your editor and then the ambiance of the seasons, it all sort of fed into the creation yeah. of the book. And that really comes through in the way you've written it. Yeah, it, I really didn't know, <clears throat> excuse me, that it would be a book at first. And it was only mm -hmm. in writing those, those reflections that I started to get a sense of, oh, this really could be a book. And um, it, <clears throat> it really was interesting for me. Like what, 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 how am I bringing a, a Buddhist sensibility to what I'm doing? I started to pick out some of the uh, important themes in, in, uh, for me uh, in what that might mean. Uh, and then, uh, of course, I had to show everything that I was writing to the patients who I was writing about. Uh, so my description of the sessions and then my commentary on the sessions, and we would have a back and forth about uh, what pseudonym did they want to use? And uh, was it, could I change, how could I change the identifying characteristics? But, but we wanted to make the sessions as accurate as possible. And, um, wow. And they learned more from that process because I had to tell them more about what I was actually thinking than I would do ordinarily in a regular session. And so those sessions that would have probably disappeared into the recesses of the past became in a kind of anti-Buddhist way because they were preserved, you know, uh, but they became, <laughs> they, they became touchstones in a way for the, these various psychotherapies that we were engaged in together. Wow, fascinating. So multiple levels of work going on here, so many um, which is so, yeah, so rare and so unusual. So I'm, I'm trusting it was quite an enriching process for you to engage all these levels with the folks, the patients that you worked with. One of the themes that really struck me is you said um, how um, I'm Curious, one of the themes that you spoke about is how are interpersonal encounters meditative, you know? Um, and so you're speaking about the relationship, the work you're doing with patients for the session, during the session as meditative encounters. Um, can you speak um, more about, as interpersonal encounters, excuse yeah, me, can sure, you speak more sure. about how they're meditative? Uh, sure. Well, we're used to thinking of meditation as something that we do in a solitary way, you, you know, that it's a one person, it's a one person uh, event, yeah. uh, uh, intrapsychic, like we're looking inside ourselves and cultivating a certain kind of 
posture, mental posture or, or, or mental stance. Um, but why should meditation have to be so uh, uh, internal? Why, why, why? That's where the John Cage influence started to come in for me. J John Cage, I don't know, I don't know how familiar you are with him, but uh, he studied Buddhism in 1951 with a visiting Japanese Buddhist scholar, uh, D.T. Suzuki, who taught for two years at Columbia and all the sort of downtown bohemian intelligentsia, uh, Eric Fromm, Karen Horney, Allen Ginsberg, mm -hmm. Thomas Merton, uh, uh, Agnes Martin, Philip Gustin, uh, and John Cage, among others, went to these Buddhist lectures. And Cage was, Cage understood it, got it, but said, I've already decided to devote my life to music. So um, any kind of sitting meditation is just going to get in the way of my music. So I'm going to bring what I've learned about meditation to my work as a composer and my work as a musician. And so the first move that he made was to stop discriminating between musical sounds and non-musical sounds. So not, and in, in um, mindfulness meditation, we say, don't push away the unpleasant, don't cling to the pleasant, or if there's something a little perverse about you, don't push away the pleasant and don't cling to the unpleasant, you know, but try to give impartial attention to everything there is to observe. Now, Freud, when he taught physicians practicing psychoanalysis, said exactly the same thing. He said, you know, suspend judgment and give impartial attention to everything there is to observe. If you read those words and didn't know it was Freud, you would think it was D.T. Suzuki or you would think it was John Cage. So there's a linking thing, you know, right there. Um, so, uh, and what is the point of meditation or of mindfulness? Is it to uh, be able to be in the present moment with your breath? Is that the ultimate point? Or is the point to be able to be present with your partner, with your children, with your, you know, in your work environment, in the garden, with the outside world? So already we know from the practice of meditation that it's not meant to be only internal. And in fact, what is, is there a distinction? Thich Nhat Hanh uh, would always say, you know, uh, uh, breathe in breathe out, but eventually you find there's no distinction between inner and outer. Mm. So why not bring that attentional posture, that attentional attitude that we learn from meditation, why not bring that to the practice of psychotherapy? Um, and in fact, you know, I, I'm a psychiatrist, as I mentioned, which means I went to medical school, which means that um, when it comes time to actually training as a psychiatrist, they don't really give you any teaching. You know, it's like when it's, mm -hmm. when it's time to do dermatology, you go in and work with the dermatologist. When it's time to do surgery, you go in and assist the surgeon. When it's time to do psychiatry, you get a patient and you go in a room with them. And uh, so when that, when that happened to me, what I yeah. had to draw on was my own experience watching my own mind and my own experience in psychotherapy myself as a patient. But I decided right away, yeah. what if I try to give the same kind of non-judgmental, impartial attention that I've practiced on myself? What if I try to apply that to this patient, this first patient of mine? And that seemed to work. 
you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that kind of attention is fundamental to establishing a therapeutic alliance with the, with the patient. And that's, you know, I talk about that a lot in the book and I can talk about that as, as much as you want, but, uh, but that's the, that's the beginning of seeing psychotherapy as an interpersonal, as a two-person meditation. Uh, and I think there's some way, you know, in Buddhism, we, we talk about transmission, like what is, what does it mean to get transmission or give transmission? But I think there's some way that a, a therapist's attentional sensibility is felt by the patient, you know, uh, and that if the therapist is too intrusive or too withholding, that a, the patient's defenses are, are aroused in order to guard against the, the threat, either of, you know, interference or abandonment. But if a therapist can be present in this way that both Freud and Buddha uh, emphasized, then a, a patient becomes freer, it's safer, we're creating a safer environment for people to talk about what's really happening in their own experience, you know, rather than putting a facade on even for a therapist. Yeah. So that's, that's beautiful. I can see how that's, that is clearly a meditative experience because that's when we're sitting, we're also trying to create some sort of a holding experience or a, a presence that can allow our own consciousness, our own thoughts, feelings, experiences to arise and be witnessed in that way. And in psychotherapy, just giving mm -hmm. your full attention to another person, you know, a a therapist is uniquely positioned to give their full attention to the client, to the patient, to the person. And that's such an unusual experience for, you know, for the other. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, you also talk about looking further and feeling into our emotional lives. And by doing that, we gain spiritual understanding. And I so appreciated that because you're again linking our own psychological material, our reactivity, our emotions, you know, that they need to be held, they need to be seen, they need to be witnessed in the way you're talking about. Um, by a therapist or by another. And that actually leads to spiritual understanding. Um, so can you speak more about that as well? And how, how does that do that? How does that work for you? Uh, well, I, I think there's a tendency in um, spiritual circles, and, but not only in spiritual circles. I think it's a tendency, it's a widespread tendency to um, try to either rise above or bypass or suppress a difficult emotional experience. You know, why? Because it's difficult, it's unpleasant, you know? Uh, And uh, it would be easier if we didn't have to feel it, you know? So uh, even the Buddha in the the Buddhist time when he taught his fundamental psychology, you know, in the form of the Four Noble Truths, his first truth, he just used a single word and it was dukkha. You know, dukkha is ordinarily translated as suffering, which is not the best translation. What the the word connotes more like a, a sense of pervasive unsatisfactoriness in life. Even when think when there's pleasant things going on, you know in the back of your mind that it's not going to last. You know, but um, uh, but the word, if you if you take the word apart, 
the word dukkha, ka is face, and duk means like difficult. So the Buddha is saying there's there's something difficult to face in life. You know, the, the, there's an opposite word, sukha, which is sweet, sweet to face. So that's the happiness, mm-hmm. the joy. But dukkha, there's there's an element, there's a dimension to life that's hard to face. We want to turn away. You, you know, so that's been going on since the Buddha's time. You know, and so what's the Buddha saying? He's saying that just perpetuates suffering, the turning away. Mm-hmm. What we what we have to do, what we have to learn if we're going to follow the Four Noble Truths, what we have to learn how to do is to face that which is difficult. So from a psychotherapist point of view, what is it that's difficult? You know, uh, uh, usually, usually there's something difficult that's bringing someone into therapy, um, but they're not always so tapped into what it really is. They might be blaming uh, this person or that person or, or themselves uh, rather than uh, uh, actually uh, dealing with what is their emotional experience that they're having trouble with. So uh, I liked uh, to look back at what's written about the Buddha's life um, for inspiration. And what, what I found is that, and I knew this, but no one had ever really done anything with this that I had seen. You know, the Buddha's mother died when, when the Buddha was a week old. He was like born from her side. He must there must have been a cesarean section or something. Anyway, she lived for a week and then she dies. And um, the Buddha, you know, when he gets to be 29 years old, he replicates his mother's abandonment of him by leaving his wife and newborn child and going off to the forest to seek his enlightenment. And for, for years, the, the path the Buddha takes is the one that you're asking about, where he tries to suppress, to step on, to or to rise above, to eliminate all the toxic feelings, all the difficult feelings, you know, his rage, his sense of abandonment, I would say, his sense of personal emptiness, what it would, whatever it might have been. He became a master of austerities, like a modern-day patient who suffers from anorexia, you know, uh, stopped eating, became to- totally emaciated, drinking his own urine. Uh, until he's fa- one day he's falling over on himself because uh, he's lost all of his bodily strength. And then he has a childhood memory. Uh, the only time in the story of the Buddha's life where a childhood memory comes into play. And he remembers a joyful feeling of when he was a boy sitting under a rose apple tree, it said, watching his father plowing in the fields. So I take that as like a Winnicottian idea of like a, the, a child who knows his father or mother is in the distance, but is left alone enough to mm-hmm. uh, to go off into his or her own imagination, you know? So he's sitting under the tree, uh, he's, he's blissing out, he has a joyful feeling, and he remembers that feeling. And he has enough presence of mind, it's like a, a, a first kind of self-analysis, you know? Uh, he has enough presence of mind to say to himself, why am I remembering this at this moment, this joyful feeling, you know, when I'm at the height of my ascetic practices? And he thinks, maybe I'm trying to tell myself something, you know, maybe the way I'm going about this, trying to look away from everything that's difficult, um, maybe it's the wrong path. And maybe this joyful feeling is actually the key to the enlightenment that I'm seeking. 
And, and then he says, but with a body so emaciated, there's no way I would have the strength to sustain any kind of joy in this body. And, and at that moment, a, a young woman named Sujata comes into his presence. And I start my book with this story because uh, she comes bearing a bowl of rice porridge, you know, like of, uh, of milk rice, um, uh, because she thought her, her, um, her nursemaid uh, uh, told her that there was a spirit uh, um, under this tree that she had gone to wanting to get pregnant, and she had left an offering uh, for this tree spirit and then had conceived. And then her, her assistant told her, I saw the spirit, you know, he's there. So she comes with milk rice for the spirit, but it's the Buddha. And he takes the nourishment and uh, she, she's like embodies the mother that he had lost um, or the spiritual friend that he needed, you know, and uh, he proceeds from there to go to uh, his seat of enlightenment. You know, he walks for a couple of days and sits under the tree and then has all these experiences, but it's because he turned himself around and that, that memory is said to be the um, beginning of the Buddha's uh, middle path, which is, you know, not the indulgence of sense desire, but not the, not the reaching into the ascetic practices. So uh, I think there's something there about permitting emotional experience, the entire range of emotional experience. I think the Buddha was trying to work out something that many of us in our psychotherapies are also trying to work out, which, which is you know, earlier uh, difficulties, losses, uh, uh, feelings of estrangement, uh, dissociation, and so on. And he found his way through that by turning himself around uh, at that moment and allowing the entire range of his emotional experience to enrich his mind. Wow. I don't think I've ever heard that synthesis put together of his own trauma and asceticism and spiritual bypass and then the movement towards his healing in the middle path. That's that's really, uh, that's profound and, and so instructive, I think. Uh, for so many of us on the spiritual path or the psychological path. And related to that, you have a couple of um, cases in your practice, at least, where you're talking about the inner critic, the superego, um, anger turned inward, um, this process of uh, where we move towards self-loathing and self-rejection and how painful that is and how you work with uh, your patients around those themes, and that accessing our anger, our aggression, and appropriately expressing and integrating is actually a pathway towards compassion, you know, which is a really significant linking that you're doing there. Um, and related to that, I'm, I'm curious about, um, you know, I think that for many listeners, you know, who might be, you know, Buddhist practitioners who want to focus on compassion and equanimity, you know, and anger and aggression is to be eschewed, or nice empathic therapists who don't want to also be angry or, you know, hold their aggression. So if you could talk a little bit more about um, this process, this relationship between anger and kindness and compassion. I think that would be really powerful. Sure. Well, the, the, um, the way I structured the book 
um, was both according to the seasons, as I was mentioning to you earlier, um, winter, spring, summer, fall. Uh, but then for each of the four parts, uh, each of the four seasons, I also wanted to have an element or an aspect of the traditional Buddhist path of insight. So uh, the first section uh, became clinging because that's, that's what uh, uh, usually brings us into practice or into therapy, some kind of clinging. The second section was mindfulness. The third section was insight. And the fourth section was going to be compassion, you know, because that's sort of the, the, the ladder or the trajectory or the path. Uh, but all the, uh, all the psychotherapy sessions in the fourth section, which, which was supposed to be compassion, when I read through them, they were all about anger or aggression, you, you know, um, <laughs> and they, they were all about that because uh, um, in order to, in order to reach not sentimental compassion or sort of false compassion, but in order to reach real compassion, I think, but this is not my original thought. I can tell you where, whose, whose ideas I'm drawing on with this. Uh, but in order for compassion truly to develop in a child in a, or in an adult, uh, one has to reckon with one's own rage, with one's own anger, with one's own hatred. So often, over the years when I've been teaching, sometimes with Sharon Salzberg, sometimes with Robert Thurman, sometimes the three of us, teaching to mostly Buddhist audiences, there's a famous paper that uh, uh, Donald Winnicott, the child psychiatrist and psychoanalyst who I mentioned earlier, who is one of the grandfather figures that I'm uh, channeling in, in my book, um, uh, Winnicott wrote a famous paper called Hate and the Countertransference in which he talks about like the, he outlines like the 15 reasons why a mother hates her infant. Um, and, and, and he's got a great sense of humor Winnicott. So, it's, so, uh, so each, each reason is, you know, like uh, he fusses all day and then she takes him out in the stroller and a neighbor says, isn't he sweet? Or, uh, you know, mm. uh, he, he won't take the mother's <laughs> food, but then, but then takes the bottle from the nanny kind of thing. Um, so, so Winnicott, I mean, what he's amazing on this theme, uh, and all, all my books I draw on Winnicott and in this one, I tried to keep Winnicott out of it until I got to the fourth section, which was to be about compassion. And then I just needed so much of Winnicott. So what, 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 what I like reading that paper to the Buddhist audiences, cause it makes them a little nervous because as you're saying, there's a big tendency um, in spiritual circles to downplay uh, one's own inner violence, you know, uh, and to pretend that it's not there. So I like to bring it out, therapist that I am, so that people can reckon with it. Um, Winnicott's point is that there's no way in any kind of intimate relationship where people need so much from each other that uh, the entire range of emotions aren't um, brought out, that a therapist inevitably feels anger at demanding patients, that patients inevitably feel anger at withholding or appearing to be withholding therapists, that babies uh, uh, have not yet differentiated their anger from their need 
their anger from their hunger, their rage from their desire. Babies are like one bundle of emotion and they attack the parent with what Winnicott, uh, his favorite word was ruthless. So with, with that kind of ruthless desire, uh, babies go at their parents. And so uh, Winnicott's first point in this paper is that the good enough parent, and he, he coined that phrase, the good enough mother, the good enough parent, the good enough parent doesn't reject or abandon uh, or interfere, you know, doesn't get anxious, doesn't get withdrawn in the face of the baby's aggression. That the good enough parent is able to, you know, kind of uh, jostle, tease, hold, you know, reassure, like, I know you're upset, but what is it you need? We just have to change you. You may, are you hungry? You know, it's okay. The, the, the good enough parent, the devoted parent in Winnicott's view is able to create a good enough holding environment that the baby doesn't get the feeling that their anger is so destructive, so overpowering that they will destroy the very person who they need the most. So anger gradually gets gets um, integrated into the whole range of human experience rather than becoming the great destructive emotion that we all fear that it is. So Winnicott says something similar is going on in the therapeutic couple, something similar is going on in our intimate relationships, um, and uh, that the um, in the childhood version, when the growing child starts to realize that the mother and father are going to sometimes disappoint him or her, uh, that actually they're not under the baby's omnipotent control, you know, that they're gonna be let down or disappointed sometimes, but that the parents will come through. The baby starts to get the sense of the parent as having their own self, their own separate self, not being under the, their total control. And that that is the seed of compassion, because the baby can start to understand that, oh, there's another person there, you know, another person separate from me, but like me, you, you know, uh, but different from me. Um, and that the it, therapy provides a, um, uh, another, a, uh, another version, another attempt to make that leap uh, fr from, um, uh, self self-involved sense of uh you know why am i not being attended to the way i need to be attended to to oh i understand you're like another person you're separate that's the seed of kindness the seed of empathy the seed of compassion beautiful yeah yeah so you in one of your chapters you um there is uh, one of your patients who is seeking a particular kind of healing understanding, I think, from his parents. And if I recall, you're recognizing that he may not get that uh, from his parents. And then you go further and you say something like, um, you're the healer. Um, and I, I wrote it down, if I can just spot it. Um, yeah, here it is. 
that you don't, you're saying you don't need healing, that you are the healer. Um, and then you evoke uh, the Buddhist bodhisattva of compassion, Kuan Yin, meaning she who hears our cries, and you, you explain that. Um, so I was really struck by how you helped, helped him take that leap potentially, you know, from somebody who was identified perhaps with his emptiness, with his needs, with his woundedness. Well, no, towards... it's, more, it, it, it's more intense than that. Um, so th okay. this case you're referring to was the, it's the first mm -hmm. case that I, that I wrote down, even before I had set the agenda for the entire book. So the, the, the patient in question was the child of uh, two Holocaust survivors. Uh, each of each parent had had a, a family in the old world, um, children, husbands, wives in the old world, uh, who had been eliminated, destroyed, killed, murdered in the um, concentration camps. And they, they had met in a displacement. The parents met after liberation. Um, uh, they walked from the from the camp uh, that they were released from in Germany. They walked to France, um, and then they came to America. And then they had this uh, this uh, man who became my patient. So he grew up uh, in the shadow, uh, you know, with the um, the horror, untalked about, rarely talked about uh, horror of both of his parents having lost their their children he was the he and his sister born after the war were the you know uh, all that all all they had but uh, he had the sense of this incredible grief in uh, in both of his parents that he could never reach you know because they uh, had to keep it uh, uh, they were doing their best i think and he thinks to uh, just just to uh, go on being, you know. So his cry uh, uh, when he was a boy growing up, he would always ask his parents, "Was I a good boy today?" You know, because he could sense their suffering. Uh, and as as children often are, uh, he he was taking responsibility for the parents' suffering. Mm -hmm. So he couldn't understand the Holocaust. He didn't know about the, you know, did, none of that could have made sense to him. So he just felt their pain and then was trying to be as, you know, uh, trying to be a good boy. By the time he came to therapy and he's like in his 50s or whatever, he, um, he's, his plea to me, which you were referencing, was... Um, will I ever be healed? When will I ever be healed? Because he was carrying this pain, not just his pain, the generational pain, the pain of his parents, now deceased. Will I ever be healed? So my, um, my um, improvisational response to him, not thought out in, in advance, but I had heard this cry from him in other sessions. My response on this day was, you don't need to be healed. You were, you were the healer. You know, there, there you came. The child, they, there, your parents lost all those, you know, their sons, their daughters. Then you, what a miracle you must have been, you know. Um, and so, but so by turning it that way, you know. And then I told him about Kuan Yin, 
you know, like I said, you're the bodhisattva, you're already a bodhisattva, you know, uh, and he didn't know what that was, a bodhisattva. So I said, do you know about Kuan Yin? No, he didn't know about Kuan Yin. So Kuan Yin, uh, in, in Tibet, Kuan Yin changed uh, gender and became Avalokiteshvara with a thousand arms. And the, each arm was meant to reach down and pluck a suffering being, you know, from the, uh, from samsara and pull them, you know? So I was like, you came down, you came to help your parents, you know, uh, Kuan Yin, she who hears your, she who hears our cries, you heard your parents cries and you came. Um, so that was helpful to him, you know? And, um, now he's told me he's, he has he has Kuan Yin statues in every in every room of his house and office. Really? So, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Is there any paragraph or two that you would like to read um, from your book that you'd like to share with us tonight that pops up in this moment or that you have that you'd like to share? Curious. Um, well, the Zen thing in the book, you know, the, the Zen of therapy, uncovering a hidden kindness in life. That's the, mm -hmm. that's the book's title. So, um, I was no scholar of Zen when I started the book, uh, but the, in that, um, COVID uh, time, when I was writing the reflections, I started reading a lot of Zen poetry, uh, and books about Zen koans and so on. And, um, I found one book. You might know that. Do you know what John Tarrant? Uh, he's a yes. he's a West Coast guy. So um, uh, uh, I've read one of his books years ago. Yeah, yeah. He has a great book that that um, I came upon called um, "Bring Me the Rhinoceros and Other Koans," uh, and he like tries to take the mystery out of koans by by talking about what they what what is their actual function, um, and so I lifted uh, from his book. Um, he, he goes through um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven uh, attributes of koans, um, which I think would be nice to read. You know, the most famous koan is what is the sound of one hand clapping? But, um, but that wasn't really the original koan. The original koan was just what is the sound of one hand? And, uh, and I talk about that one in the book. It had nothing to do with clapping. It was just what is the sound of one hand? And um, uh, it came from, from Hakuin, who was a great Zen master who uh, became enlightened in his 80s and then, then became a painter uh, and a calligrapher. And he did a drawing of this, of this koan, what is the sound of one hand? And the drawing was of a, a monkey with two hands over his ears, you know, like hunched over over his ears, like his mind is going fat. He's, you know, an, an anxious monkey uh, with his hands over his ears. And then behind him is a, is a bird, a cuckoo flying in the air. And the, the, the cuckoo in Japanese uh, uh, iconography is like the symbol of springtime, like young couples go out in the springtime to uh, lie in the grass together to listen to the sound of the cuckoo. And the, the cuckoo flies with its beak open, making it sound, you know, but the monkey can't hear it. And then, and then under it, uh, Hakuin writes, um, uh, uh, lift one hand, you know, um, lift one hand, even when not listening, 
you know? So the idea is what is the sound of one hand? If you take this hand off your ear, you can hear the sound of the cuckoo. So that's the first explication of a koan. But so, so Tarrant in his book lists these seven attributes of koans. So I'll read that, okay? Hey. Koans show you that you can depend on creative moves. Koans encourage doubt and curiosity. Koans rely on uncertainty as a path to happiness. Koans will undermine your reasons and your explanations. Koans lead you to see life as funny rather than tragic. Koans will change your idea of who you are and this will require courage. Koans reveal a hidden kindness to life. So that's where I got the subtitle from, you know, straight, straight from uh, John Tarrant. And then a little later in the book, I'll just read you. This is also from him, not from me. If you are used to living in a small room and suddenly discover a wide meadow, you might feel unsafe. Everyone thinks that they want happiness, but they might not. They might rather keep their stories about who they are and about what is impossible. Happiness is not an add-on to what you already are. It requires you to become a different person from the one who set off seeking it. So I like the, his um, uh, description of koans. I see that also as a description of therapy. So therapy and effective therapy is trying to do what he's saying koans do. You know, they show you that you can rely on creative moves. They encourage doubt and curiosity. Therapy relies on uncertainty as a path to happiness, you know? Well, mm -hmm. therapy will undermine your reasons and your explanations, help you to see life as funny rather than tragic, change your idea of who you are, and this will require courage. And therapy hopefully will reveal a hidden kindness in life. Lovely. Can you say more about how you bring in koans and haiku and various psycho-spiritual teachings in your sessions with patients? How do you weave that in? Oh, oh I don't. I don't. Mm -hmm. I, only, I only wove that into the book. Um, so I, uh -huh. I, I wove all that into the book to try to describe the intangible, you know, thing about bringing spirituality together with therapy. Like, like what is it? I, I think it, it's, um, it's not so, it's not so concrete as uh, talking about koans or teaching meditation or uh, using haiku or any, that one session that I talked about with the uh, child of the Holocaust survivors, that, that, you know, there I was pulling Kuan Yin and the idea of a bodhisattva in, but that was spontaneous. That was, I, that's the only time I've ever done that particular thing. Um, I tell another story in the book about another session where a, um, a, a woman was in my office and she had several years before lost her, uh, her soulmate. And, uh, and she was in deep distress, you know, angry, but not, not really admitting the anger, but, but um, uh, uh, grieving, but, but I was, uh, I wasn't sure she was grieving in as true a way as maybe she was capable of. And she was repeating something something on the order of, uh, I just need help. I just need something. I just need something, you know, to make me feel better. And um, 
uh, I keep in my office. Uh, one of one of my patients came back from uh, an ashram, Neem Karoli Baba's ashram in India, came back and brought me a little bag of what what they call prasad, which is like a food that's been blessed that you offer to the gods, and then they give back to you, and you so you get some of that good energy. Uh, so I keep it hidden in a in a uh, ceramic jar on the on my bookshelf. So she's like, uh, you know, I just wish I, there was a pill or some magic, some you know. I said, oh, I, okay, you want some? I, I I have that for you. And I went and got some of the prasad out of opened the jar and took it out of the the um, cellophane, you know, and uh, and gave it to her. And she's like, you know, what is this? Is this like some psychedelic thing? Or no, it's like a sugar pill. Um, and she she took it. And it just and it paused the therapy, you know, like she her cries, her distress was interrupted because I had surprised her with this, you know, with with this thing that didn't make any sense, you know, like this, like she wasn't a spiritual person, she didn't know what prasad was, you know, um, but but she took it and she put it in her mouth and she she ate it and the whole complexion of the session, the whole texture of the session changed as a result. And then um, uh, she went home and that night she sent me an email saying, I don't know what that was, but that placebo medicine of yours, but it really, you should give that to all of your patients. It really changed something for me. Mm. And, um, you know, then when I wrote the session up and sent, we had a nice back and forth about that, where uh, that became like a motif for something for her. So, you know, various ways like that, but, but th that again, that was, um, that's not something I thought about in advance. It's like, I'm, I'm trying to pull on whatever I can to help the people who are under my care. So, so that means I'll pull the, I, I tell a story in here of throwing the I Ching with a patient, you know, uh, which is not something that I regularly do, but I must've been stuck in, in some way with him. And I was looking like John Cage uses the I Ching. And I, I was like, have you ever thrown the I Ching? We could ask the, the I Ching what to do here. And he was like, no, I don't, what's the I Ching, you know? So I, I took it off the shelf and we did it together. And, and the, the I Ching was like, he had described a dream that we were having trouble interpreting and the I Ching interpreted the dream perfectly, you know? Uh, so I tell that story in the book. So uh, but mostly I'm just like, I'm not like crazy like that. Mostly I'm just like, uh, <laughs> you know, listening and trying to offer a helpful response. Yeah, well, you're obviously also following your intuition and some sort of synchronicity perhaps. And related to this, I noticed also that there were periods where there was a fair amount of personal disclosure. You're talking a little bit about your family, family vacation, your own process, and you're disclosing that also in the book. And, you know, for therapists, that can be a delicate conversation. How much do I say? When do I say it? Is it in service of the patient? What will the impact be? You know, all those delicate moments. I'm curious if you want to share more about how that happens for you. Sure. Uh, well, I'm very aware of all that con the conversation about personal disclosure and so on, mm -hmm. and all the all the caveats are, around that. But um, uh, I remember when I was younger and seeking therapy myself, uh, how much I, how much I did not like the therapists who I went to consult 
with who were hiding behind the uh, uh, the blank screen of therapeutic neutrality, you, you know, uh, in a sort of classic psychoanalytic mode. Um, I didn't want that. I, you know, I mean, it was the, it, it was the early seventies. I think culturally that was out of fashion already. I don't know how much I was just like a victim of the culture, but I think it was more than that. I, I think I was needing and seeking uh, a real person someone who could be real with me um, because I needed to figure out how to be real. Um, so, yeah. uh, so the, the fair, I worked with two different therapists who were linked. One was the teacher and supervisor and therapist of the other. So, you know, um, so there's like a, a, a lineage thing in therapy, like there is in uh, many spiritual mm -hmm. uh, traditions. Uh, but both of those therapists were, you, you know, yes, I'm your therapist, but if we meet outside of the office, I'm not going to be your therapist outside of the office. I'm just a person who you know. And mm -hmm. uh, there were no, each of them I saw in their own homes, you know, with their uh, newborn child or their, uh, in another case, their lover in the next room, you, you, you know, and my office uh, is in the building where we're a loft building in uh, lower Manhattan in the basement of the building where we also live. And my wife had a studio right next to the office. My children would, would be in and out of the building. Patients would run into them. I, I made no efforts to, hide uh, um, aspects of my personal life. I was like, you know, um, and that was difficult for some patients. They didn't want that, but it was mostly just fine. And I think, um, and I think people really appreciated that I wasn't pretending to be anything other than what I was, you know, um, and that it didn't, wasn't threatening to know aspects of my personal life. Like, like what, what, uh, what's the problem with knowing that your therapist has children or has a wife or uh, has a life or, uh, you know, goes to, goes to the bathroom or uh, uh, needs to have dinner or was, is tired or, you know, but um, as you're saying, you, you know, uh, therapists err on the side also of too much disclosure and that's analogous to the intrusive or interfering parent, you know, who's uh, too busy making it be all about them instead of about the child. And that's certainly something that I've tried uh, not to be. So I've been very, very aware of, uh, uh, um, I, I don't think I'm doing any of this without thinking about it. Oh yeah, that was that was really evident to me in reading it. It was quite skillfully done, and uh, so I, I wanted to hear just more about your process around that. So we just have a few minutes left. Um, you end the book with your chapter called "Kindness," mm -hmm. and you take this trip to Hawaii mm -hmm. to spend some time with Ramdas after not having seen him for, I think, a few years. Oh, yeah, um, 20 years. At the yeah, 20 years, yeah, at the request mm -hmm. of Jack Kornfield. Um, at, the suggestion, to him. at the suggestion of Jack Kornfield, yeah. Uh-huh, and so there's a phrase that you quote from Ram Das: we are all walking each other home. Mm -hmm. 
And I love that phrase. And if you want to share anything about what that means to you, what that means to you as a therapist, having the spiritual friendship that you call with patients. Sure. Well, um, my, my uh, friendship with Ramdas. Uh, uh, he was both teacher, teacher, and uh, inspiration and friend to me. Uh, uh, I wasn't. He had much better friends than than me, but but we we did have a friendship that stretched over um, over forty years. Um, and I, I met him first when I was still an undergraduate in college, and uh, he was just back from India. Uh, and uh, a, a professor of mine, professor of psychology of mine was the person who had both hired and fired uh, Alpert, who became Ramdas and Timothy Leary, uh, but he had stayed friends with him. So, uh, so Ramdas would stay in this professor's house. Uh, and, uh, and I spent a lot of time hanging out at that professor's house. So, um, uh, so, uh, uh, so I have Ramdas in the book, uh, both at the beginning and at the end and a little bit in the middle, um, because, um, uh, uh, I, he was a really a, a big influence um, on my whole approach to uh, to being a therapist, and I, and I tell a story um, of going to visit him not this last time in Maui, uh, but twenty years before when he was living in Tiburon, uh, just after he had had a massive stroke that paralyzed him on one side and made it very difficult for him to. Uh, um, find the words for what he was thinking. He he had an aphasia, which is very common when people have this kind of stroke. So um, his thinking wasn't impaired, but he couldn't put the words on what he wanted to say. And I went to visit him. Um, I was in my mid forties by then. So I'd been working as a therapist for more than a decade for sure. And uh, I hadn't seen him in, in 10 years, probably at that point. And he greeted me, and he uh, uh, he he always kind of teased me, and and I know for him I was always about twenty one years old, you know, because which is when he first met me. So he's like, oh, "Mark, uh, are you a, a Buddhist therapist now?" You know, with a little bit of little little edge. And I was like, "Yeah, I, I guess I am," you know. Um, and then and then he said this thing that took him a long time to say, but he found the words, and he said do you see them, meaning my patients, do you see them as already free? But he, he spread it out over time. Do you see them you know, as already free? It took me a long time, meaning you know, a minute or so to understand what he was saying. And um, I couldn't have conceptualized it like that, but, but he could, but it struck me as absolutely true. And, uh, Th that vision, you know, of a kind of innate uh, Buddha nature or um, innocence, but also wholeness uh, that's already there behind the elaborated personality or the defensive structure that we all build up, you, you know, uh, that sense that the person who's coming in for therapy is um, it, you know embroiled in their problems, but that but that they're also already free, you know. So that there's another there's something else in them that I can reach for in my interactions, 
that that really uh, has guided me all the way through my uh, my years as a therapist. Um, and uh, uh, so then another 20 years went by, you know, before I, then I went to Maui, as you're saying, at, at Jack Hornfield's suggestion, because he said, you have to go see Ramdas. You know, he's he's become the person that he always wanted to be. You, you know, all those uh, uh, the 20 years or so of suffering under the stroke, he was he never complained about it. He was continuing to put out uh, a loving uh, energy to all the people who were, you know, helping him and, and around him. And, um, uh, and he had no need anymore to pretend to be uh, Ramdas, you, you know. Uh, so I tried to write about that at the end of the book as a, um, as a description maybe of uh, uh, what might be possible for, for all of us. But that thing of, uh, that thing of being already free, I, a friend of mine, I'm, I have it here. Um, a friend of mine who heard me talking about this on another podcast, not, not that long ago, uh, just sent me this email. It's pretty short. Um, let me read it to you, okay? Yeah. So um, she's an old friend. And so she said, um, you know, I'm reading your book and, I, you know, I like it, blah, blah. Uh, I've heard you tell the Ramdas story in which he asked you if you see your therapy clients as already free a couple of times, she writes. I could never really understand what he meant and what you understood about that question. Somehow hearing it again and being out in California as an active grandparent, I have found my own understanding of that question. In a way that I was never able to see my children, I see my granddaughters as already complete with the capacities they will need, even though I do not have a clue about what the specifics of their childhood or lives as adults will be. I know they have an enormous amount to learn and experience and their own windy road to travel, but I see them as free or as complete souls Somehow that understanding lets me be present with them in a deep way. Not sure if this at all overlaps your understanding, but I thought I would share it anyway. Love to you and your family. That really encapsulates it right there. Yeah, yeah. something. <sighs> Thank you. Um, just very moved and filled uh, by this conversation. This has just been really rich and dynamic, and it went to lots of amazing places. So I'm very grateful that you've come to CIS, that you've offered so much. Um, there's a lot to unpack here. The book is has about 50 or so, I think, chapters of different folks. Uh, short, some repeat, short little chapters, don't worry. Yes, two to four pages about, yeah. 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 Um, so they're pithy um, and, and loaded. Uh, with experience and uh, information. So, uh, so I'm grateful to have met you and to have had a conversation with you and learned from you. Um, and so maybe you want to say some closing words before we uh, fully end. Mark. Well, I've just always wanted to come to CIS. So, uh, so I'm almost there. And uh, thank, thank you for having me, at least virtually. And, um, you know, uh, I really respect the work that's going on there. So glad to be part of it a little bit. Great. 
Well, hopefully you'll come back. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the Indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lau Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities. <laughs>